Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. We preview film productions and events in the region and speak with creative entrepreneurs as Erie carves out its part in the wider industry landscape. I'm Jesse Olszewski. I'm a filmmaker and project coordinator at the Greater Erie Film Office. And I'm Erica Berlin, the president of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. This week at Film Grain, which is our dinner and a movie series at the Bourbon Barrel, we will be presenting Amazing Grace, a documentary presenting Aretha Franklin with choir at the New Bethel Baptist Church in Watts, Los Angeles, in January 1972. Our guest today is screenwriter Phil Perello who is from Erie and is now working in L.A., and that will lead into our roundtable discussion about L.A. versus other film cities to work in. But first, the Erie Reader has their Best of Erie Awards going on right now. Nominations are open. Feel free to stop in and vote for the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania for Best Nonprofit and our Film Grain Dinner and a Movie Series for Best Art Event. Other important categories for film in our region are Best Filmmaker, Best Actor, and Best Actress. So Film Grain coming up, Dinner and a Movie, on Wednesday nights. So we are at the Bourbon Barrel, 1213 State Street in downtown Erie. Great location, and we've got a big screen, couch, table seating options, and really great company. Um, And as of this month, we have a really upgraded sound system. It's impressive. If you've been before and you had some issues with the audio, they are completely gone. Um, We have a whole new sound engineer and a new mixer and speakers that are working great. So please come back if you were a little turned off by the by the uh, the sound before. So we also serve um, a buffet dinner, and that's included with your admission. And we have vegetarian options each week. You can request gluten-free if you need, and we do p- table service all night long. This Wednesday night, we are screening Amazing Grace, Aretha Franklin's recording of her gospel album. And it's a documentary that was originally supposed to be released in 1972, But due to difficulties syncing audio tracks with the visual print, it was relegated to a vault at Warner Brothers until 2007, when producer Alan Elliott purchased the raw footage and attempted to sync it. So then, with the pared-down footage, 87 minutes long, um, it was planned for a 2011 release, but... Aretha Franklin sued Elliot for appropriating her likeness without her permission, and the release date passed. And after Aretha's death in 2018, her family made an arrangement to release the film, which eventually premiered at the Doc NYC Festival in 2018 before being released worldwide on April 5th, 2019. So... In the documentary, um, American singer-songwriter Aretha Franklin records her gospel album Amazing Grace live at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. She's accompanied by the Southern California Community Choir, directed by Alexander Hamilton, not the Alexander Hamilton of... Oh, I was, I was wondering. <laughs> and, and seated behind her as she sings from the church's lectern to a mostly African-American audience. James Cleveland appears as a featured singer and piano accompaniment. Franklin is also accompanied by Bernard Purdy on drums and Chuck Rainey on bass guitar. And on the second night, Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts were in the audience. They were in L.A. finishing their album Exile on Main Street. And critic Jordan Hoffman believes the gospel inflections of songs such as Shine a Light 
and Let It Loose were inspired by the visit. So pre-sales are available through our website at filmsocietynwpa.org. And I will say, just recently, the Erie Philharmonic did an amazing tribute to Aretha. Um, And if you went to that show, you were blown away by the vocal performances and how great the backing was um, with the full orchestra. Um, So please come and check this out with, with Aretha. Obviously, she is the queen of soul. And watching the trailer for this documentary just blew me away. Of course, it's she starts with Amazing Grace. And the audience just goes crazy for her. And the choir stands up and behind her and sings along. You have to check it out. So we're going to put the link to the trailer in the episode notes. So please check it out. Um, that's coming up this Wednesday at the Bourbon Barrel. $12 for a ticket, $15 for couch seating. Um, that includes your food and your um, and your seat. So please, please join us. You know if the trailer is giving you goosebumps. Absolutely. That the actual film will then just the actual film will, will. blow your socks off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So today's guest is Phil Perello, an Erie native and TV and features writer who went from teaching at Gannon to giving Spielberg a donut on his first day of work in LA. He'll be here to talk about the best tips and resources online for aspiring screenwriters and what not to do when and if you are planning the big move to Hollywood. And we're going to talk about LA in general and and why it's great or not great for filmmaking. So. Um, I went to high school with Phil. So I remember meeting Phil back when we started doing theater, right? Yeah, ninth grade. McMonologues. Yeah, yeah. You threw a book during your monologue, and I I remember it being probably the best one in the show. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if you remember, but in 10th grade, I did uh, an X-Files episode that was like an adaptation of Oedipus Rex as we were reading that in Mrs. Mc- Ms. McCoy's class for English and oh. you starred in my video and oh, I, I tried to direct something that didn't suck too much and uh, I was like huh this so that that got me onto the path of maybe I should do something like this. So okay so that was your first kind of exciting project where you were going wait I, I like theater I like acting I like television clearly I think I'm going to write my own uh, my own show. So what? Where'd you go from there? So I, I went uh, I went to Florida State for a year to study film. Then I moved back to Erie, uh, finished school there, taught at Gannon. And when I was at Gannon, um, we had a class called uh, Rhetoric, and I did one on James Bond. And someone said, you know, if you don't want to do a paper, you can do a video. And I went, oh, f yeah, I'll, I'll do a video. Uh, so I made like a 10 minute video instead of doing the paper. The paper would have taken infinitely less time, but I was not thinking properly. <laughs> um, so I did the video and a teacher pulled me aside and the girl I was dating at the time pulled me inside and said, everything you write is about movies or TV. You need to go out to L.A. So uh, that was around 2003. And I I moved to Orange County to go to uh, grad school for screenwriting at Orange uh, County's uh, Chapman University. I was the one of the first students 
to get into their MFA screenwriting program there. Uh, so that was um, not the most fun experience because, you know, we were the, the baby writers. We were the, the, the first uh, people in. So the resources were limited. And uh, so it was a struggle to figure out what to do in a field that I didn't know anything about doing. Um, and the, the coolest thing to come out of that was uh, I interned at Sony uh, for a company called Red Wagon. They made um, memoirs of a geisha and uh, Jarhead. Um, that was my, my, my first gig. Uh, my first day, I got there early, like a kiss ass, uh, with some donuts under my arm. And I'm walking onto the lot and I see Steven Spielberg sitting on a bench all by himself outside the scoring stage for War of the Worlds. Wow. And uh, I asked him for directions and to, to the office I'm supposed to go to. And I mean, I, I knew the office, <laughs> I didn't know how to, to talk to Spielberg, like, and not, you know, be some sort of, you know, drooling fanboy. And I'm talking to him and all of a sudden I hear like the, the click, click, click of high heels and it's Kathleen Kennedy running down with two assistants flanking her going, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's happening? And he goes, relax. It, the kid's just lost. <laughs> and and he looks at my box of donuts and leans over to her and whispers, ask him if I can have a donut. And she says, you ask him. And I open the box, give him both a donut. And uh, he goes, okay, well, thanks, Phil. And uh, you tell uh, the owners of Red Wagon, Doug and Lucy, that Stephen and Katie took a donut. Wow. Wow. And I said, okay. And yeah, I said, okay. And uh, Mr. Spielberg, it's an honor to meet you. I, I really admire your work. Uh, Minority Report is, oh. uh, that's an all-timer. Good choice. Said, oh, thank you so much. That's, no one really talks about that with me. I shook his hand and left. Phil? Yeah? I don't really think that's true, right? He didn't actually say, oh, thanks. No one really talks to me about. I think he was being Minority serious Report. because that <laughs> movie does not get a lot of love. No? No. I'm so shocked. It's such a good movie. Yeah. It's it's damn good. It's uh, I, that's like for me, that's top five for him. Um, but yeah, so I, that was like my first day, and I thought, oh well, it can only go down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so and wait a second. Really so, cool. Were you? What was your job? Were you a PA? You weren't like uh, no, coming in a, writing. I was a. I was what they call an intern. So slightly. Uh, less valuable than a PA. <laughs> um, I, but thankfully, my PA, uh, my my intern experience was not the the typical intern experience, which is where you know you sit on your butt, you get coffee, or get yelled at for not getting the coffee fast enough, or running lunch orders. I uh, I was put on what they call uh, coverage duty, which is uh, you have two to three scripts to read today. Read them type up uh, what the story is is it is is this is this worth engaging the writer on and you either like you can pass on the script but consider the writer you can pass on both or consider both and i was reading you know scripts for movies before they came out like miami vice or jarhead or uh like i got to read jj abrams is superman script oh dude um, <laughs> yeah it was uh i mean that, I, that's on, that's been online for quite some time now, but it was kind of cool to to read that and be like, okay, well, you guys want to meet with J.J. Abrams about a project? Sure. Okay, <laughs> we'll we'll figure that out. Um, Phil, is so, that is that a typical experience for someone? Like, you're, you have an MFA really in question. screenwriting, and then how do you end up as the coverage intern? 
Yeah, so um, that's a really good question. Um, while getting the MFA, traditionally, uh, if, well, if, I, maybe this has changed a bit now, but I know that, that schools like UCLA and USC and, and Chapman, you know, they require an internship component at some point, either as undergrad or as grad. And that is to get your foot in the door. That, to me, was more helpful and more useful than, you know, paying the $90,000 to go to school. Um, so it's not like like the typical path per se but it is like a it is like a like a helpful one and like the usual track can be like you you get your mfa you graduate and you get an assistant job at an agency or you're working a desk at a production shingle or a studio or you get like some different day job that's in the industry or industry adjacent i was able to luck out with an internship uh it wasn't uh paid but i was reading scripts every day and I was talking to writers, executives about what to look for in a script to how to better market my own. So I learned more in that year as an intern than I did, you know, two years uh, getting my master's. <laughs> so it's it's not like I it's I don't want to make it sound like, you know, you get this MFA and then you're stuck interning or, you know, put like a like disparage the, the MFA process. At the same time, you know, they what they don't teach you. And grad school is that, you know, the MFA is a degree that's slightly less marketable than one in farming unicorns. <laughs> and like you, you, you think if you're black and white brained like I am, you think you get this degree. It's a terminal degree. There's a job. There's, you must be able to apply for a screenwriting job or a writing gig just like you can for a regular job type job. And no, that's, that's not the case. And the application process is just putting in the time, meeting people, and trying to network as best you can and having to work that day job, whatever it is, while you're trying to figure out what you want to do filmmaking-wise, whether it's writing or directing. And that's the one thing that I don't think they, they really educate or prepare you for in school, which is you know, tolerating that, that slow burn, that long game to get to where you want to be. Okay, so you've got your coverage gig, your your internship. Uh, so what happens after that? After that, I, I, I day jobbed. I actually got a uh, paid job uh, interning at Paramount uh, for the Star Trek website. I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Uh, so I was writing up write-ups and things there for like episodes, uh, taking stills of ships from episodes, uh, character bios. And then uh, they thought I was doing a pretty good job. Um, and they promoted me to the marketing department where I was working on Mission Impossible 3, uh, the marketing for Mission Impossible 3, uh, Crystal Skull, Indiana Jones, um, Transformers. Uh, so I got to work closely with J.J. Abrams and uh, Orsi and Kurtzman, the writers of MI3 and Transformers. And I got to work a little bit with Michael Bay's people, which is a podcast and a half all in itself. Um, and, you know, from there, I, I got a job writing um, for uh, IGN, doing, like, listicles and feature articles for movies and TV, and that was around 2007 to 2011, I was at IGN, and uh, around 2011, I was like, I'm, I'm kind of tired about writing about everyone else's movies and TVs, I want to really focus on my own. So, it wasn't until about 2011 where I, like, got into writing on my own full-time. And I was just churning out 
uh, features in TV, uh, taking meetings. Uh, I, I got my first manager during that time. And I was able to, you know, five, six years later, uh, get staffed on a TV show and then sell my own. Okay, so first of all, how did you end up with a manager? Like, what's that process like? Yeah, that's, um, there's a, there's a podcast called Children of Tendu, uh, hosted by two very accomplished TV writers uh, that breaks down that process like very specifically, but uh, like nutshell wise, um, it's 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 who you know. Um, my process was I I made a friend through a friend at a writing group, and his buddy was looking uh, for clients. He just became a junior manager at a company that repped at the time. Uh, the writers of the first Iron Man movie. And he's like, they're looking for big genre sci-fi guys. You're a big genre sci-fi nerd. I'd love to send your, your script over to my buddy. Um, so it was kind of like timing and luck and who I knew. Um, the, the guy liked my scripts, liked my ideas, and uh, decided to, to rep me. Um, first, it's, that's usually how it works out. You When you come out here... Uh, you meet someone who knows someone, or you send out, you know, cold query letters and roll the dice on that. Uh, 9.5 times out of 10, you don't get a response. But those that do get the response in the query letter, uh, they they usually get wrecked. Uh, but it's a mix of doing that and, you know, just networking and, and meeting someone who knows someone who can help you get to that next stage. So you had told me before that, are you you're part of the Writers Guild of America? I am. I'm part of the WGA West. Okay. And, uh, I was able to. I um. There are different like tiers of membership, but um, if you sell a feature, you get like fully vested. You're in the guild. If you uh, sell a TV show or pitch, you, there's a another level of that that you get. Like kind of, it's like associate member, and and that's uh that's where I'm. I'm in the middle between that and and fully fledged member. So. Which what did you sell? You sold a TV show, I a sold, series, uh, a TV show to Sony uh, about. Uh, it, I pitched it as you know, it's Michael Clayton in the world of spies. Uh, it's a fixer whose job is to hunt down spies that refuse to come in from the cold. And uh, I put together that pitch with a producer buddy of mine who had a show already at Sony, and uh, we were uh, we pitched it at like 1.30 in the afternoon on a Tuesday. And by the time we were getting out of the elevator after the meeting, they had they had bought the pitch. Wow. Well, um, was that your first pitch or had you already tried pitching like all over? Uh, you know, I had a pitch before. Uh, I had pitched to Fox and a couple other networks, a, a time travel show before then. And I had pitched a, a supernatural uh exorcist-like movie to New Line and MGM and Paramount and other studios before then. So I kind of like uh, get, got my my pitching skills under my belt through that. Um, but that was the first thing I ever pitched. My TV show was the first thing I ever pitched that I, that I sold. So what happens when they buy? So what are they buying? That's a, that's a good question. Um, uh, the deal points can be different for the, for, for, for the project. We're, we're, it, there's no like real set thing, but um, for, for mine, they bought, uh, they bought the idea, uh, they bought the pitch, and they bought uh, 
an outline for the for the pilot, the series, and a draft of the pilot. Okay, and, and you I, had all of that and, uh, available right then. Like you, you had well, already done all of the, those things. Actually, uh, all I had was the the pitch and a rough chicken scratch outline for the first five years of the show. And wow. a, a lot of people, um, the majority of writers, they usually sell a pilot at my level. I had, I had no credits. I was staffed on one TV show that never got to air. And uh, it was through my relationship with that producer and the exec who oversaw that TV show where I was able to convince them I had potential to, to skip the usual process of writing the pilot. And they they commissioned me. They, they they paid me to write it instead. All I had to do was come up with a fifteen twenty minute pitch for the for the overall arc of the show, and that that's what they purchased. So what is a what is a pitch? Do you have storyboards? Are you just acting out characters some, in the pilot? <laughs> like uh, yeah, I, some you know some people do bring in visuals. Uh, I I did it a couple of times on a feature pitch, and it just felt like distracting for me. Uh, at the same time, though, like a lot of people have found success, they coming in with poster boards with images on them to convey the tone and the 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 type of look they're going for in terms of casting. Other people other people bring in iPads and just like scroll through images there on on an image deck. Um, but for me, the the pitch was, and this is another thing they don't really teach you in school. Uh, the the pitch is basically like you kick off with the personal anecdote. Like, why is this story important to me? What is it about this story that I am the best person to tell it? And you try to make it somewhat relatable. Like for, for my time travel show, um, I kicked off with something like, you know, what's that one mistake that keeps you up at night? That thing that you wish you can unhappen. What if you could? And that's that's something everyone can relate on because there is that thing that you know we think makes us who we are that we would like to change, and and if you open it that way and you can dovetail into what the show is about and how it speaks to that theme of second chances and wanting to fix mistakes, and the, you know there are some uh, really good pitch templates uh, that I could you know send over to you guys if you have the ability to post them, uh, but they're around online but um uh what's really what, what's really essential to the pitch is if you're doing a tv show is you you kick off with that you know that personal anecdote what the show is about like what's the log line of it it's it's this meets that with a mix of xyz uh the tone of it is this and here are the people we care about and then you break down who your main character is what their arc's going to be, why they're important, why should we care about them, and then you you go into pitching the pilot, and that's that's like the meat of your pitch. That'll be about five to ten minutes of your pitch, and the pitches should be no longer than fifteen or twenty minutes, unless you're doing like some epic Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings thing. You, you're given some latitude there, but for the most part, keep it to about fifteen twenty minutes. And you give like the broad strokes, the big emotional tent poles of the pilot and what your character, what your main character is doing. And if there are other supporting characters, then you pause, 
during that. And you can actually say, now I'm going to put a pin in this and break down who the other characters are that are in this thing. And you just give like a quick, uh, a quick, you know, tweet description of what these characters are. And it's also very helpful to, I found it very helpful to put a picture of who you're thinking of casting wise, because that's what the execs on the other side of the table are thinking. Even though they're staring at you with this blank face that's telling you, oh my God, they hate this, or they're not paying attention to this. All they want to do is get back to their emails. That They're just trained to do that because they don't want to get your hopes up either way. Um, hmm. So you you want to say like, oh, I'm this character is, you know, think a Tessa Thompson type or you know, we're going for a Michael B. Jordan vibe here with this character. And then give like the, the nutshell of who they are and what role they play in the show. Are they, are they a hero? Are they a villain? Are they both? Are they a love interest? And then you try to weave that back into the main thrust of the pilot pitch. And then once you're done pitching the pilot, you give like a, like a paragraph, paragraph and a half about where the rest of the first season will go and touch on some tent poles for like the next couple of years. Cause they, they want to see that this is a show. They want to see that this can go five years cause five years is the magic number for syndication. Hmm. And even though we're in you know a streaming model now and syndication is not really a thing or not as big a thing as it was 10, 15 years ago, they still need to see that, you know, this thing can go the distance that it can last for forever long we need to make this a show and you always want to end the pitch with a recap of the themes of the show like what it's about like why does this matter like it's, let's say if you're doing an action show you take away all the set pieces you take away all the kit punching and what you're left with are these characters you can't get this dynamic anywhere else on tv and you just want to end it where you began it, which is on like an emotional note, like something that that really speaks to what it is that makes this show something that we, you know, the house could be burning down, but we're not leaving until that last credit rolls. So you mentioned something that I've always wondered about. You mentioned that you're thinking like tent poles for like five years, five seasons of a show. And I've always wondered, do writers respond to the reception of the show and what the audience thinks should happen? And do they get the tone of that and actually try to serve the audience? Does that ever happen when they think, might think, well, in my story, the characters do X, Y, and Z, but the audience is really looking for A, B, and C? So... You know what I'm saying? So, or like, I feel like that happened with Game of Thrones. I mean, you had such a strong, you know, reaction to the the final season because people were expecting something different. They're like, how could you not give right. the fans what they want? So how often do you think that happens? Has it ever happened to you? Uh, in my limited experience, um, we, on the show I was staffed on, we did respond to some audience reactions to the previous season like they wanted more action and the network wanted more action but with more character so we crafted our season 
with that in mind. I think, I, I think it's, I think it's because I don't have a whole ton of experience with, with production or on a level of like a game of Thrones or a loss where the fan base is so strong that it's near impossible to escape uh, what they wish the show was doing as opposed to what you are deciding to do with it. Um, I, I've heard of some shows that have made adjustments and pivots to accommodate, you know, viewer reactions. And at the same time, uh, you learn kind of quickly if you have a good support structure in place with your management team or your reps, you learn quickly that if you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing no one. So for me, I, I try to listen to what works or what someone might like, but ultimately I decide what is it that I would want to watch? What is it that makes this worth my time? Because the viewer, whether it's a movie or TV, they're invested in it for however long they're binging it on the couch. But if it's a movie, that's at least two years of your life. Wow. And I want to avoid catering to what I think someone might like as opposed to what I know I will love. And that'll get the best result out of me. And at the same time, you're going to find it. If you're going down this road as a writer or a director, you're going to get those notes. You're going to get those people uh, who you think are on your team, like your, your reps, for example, or the exec on the project. They're going to get those notes governed by the idea that I was just shooting down, which is, you know, what will the audience like? They think that they know what someone is thinking. They think they know what will get the best response. And they're often inaccurate. They're often based in those decisions on fear because what every exec wants is another year on the job. They don't want your project or projects to be the thing that torpedoes them and sends them looking for another gig. So they're thinking in their head what their bosses may like based on what they think they what based on what they think they think the audience wants. So I, I guess like long story slightly less long. I I don't do that. I know some shows, some movies have made that adjustment, but I, I just try to listen to, you know, what is gonna get the best result out of me. Because I'm the one sitting there at the keyboard or staring or wishing I was sitting at the keyboard when I'm supposed to be uh, trying to figure out stuff. Uh, so I, I just uh, I go with what makes the most narrative sense for me. What's going to get the best story out of me. So what are you doing now? So that was so that kind of got you through, you know, what it's like to be a young screenwriter. But where do you go when you're after that? Like, so you wrote a series, you, you had a pit, you made a pitch, it was bought. What happened? Uh, well, um, what happened was Hollywood business affairs happened. Uh, business affairs is the department that's in charge of figuring out the deals and getting your, your getting you paid for them. Um, so it took me almost a year to get commenced to write my project, which means you reconvene with the exec on it and the, and the head of, and the, and his boss or their, or her boss, uh, the head of the, the department, the network, this is what you guys bought. Do you still want to do this? Is this still the direction you want to go in? They have some tweaks or suggestions. They give it to you. But then you're officially given the thumbs up to go write the first step of your deal, whatever that is. And 
Uh, I, I recently just uh, completed all my, my steps on my show, and we're hoping to find a, uh, a new home for it on a, on a streamer. So fingers crossed. And then after I sold the show, I, I got some meetings. I got a feature on the on what's called the the hit list, which is a list of you know popular horror genre scripts or like the the best unproduced horror genre scripts. And uh, that helped me you know get some get into a room, get into some rooms I needed to be in. And uh, lately, uh, given the the recent action where uh, Writers Guild had to let go of their agents as they're figuring out that situation. Uh, I've, I've just been trying to figure that out and uh, trying to get, you know, get staffed on a show through some initiatives that the Writers Guild is doing, one of which is a hashtag WGA staffing boost, which is you know upper level writers like the creator of Vampire Diaries or the, the two guys that, who ran that podcast I mentioned that they offer to read people at my level scripts, give them recs, and hopefully uh, that leads to meetings or jobs. So what have you learned over the past, well, almost 10 years, I guess? It's getting yeah. uh, getting close to 10 years now. Well, I, I've learned, uh, well, I've learned a lot. Um, but I think it's important that when you, you know, read cover stories on like the Game and Linda Lobs of the Joss Whedons out there, or you listen to interviews of them, um, kind of like the one I'm giving now that like it gets glossed over that middle process. Like it didn't, like I didn't just graduate and uh, sell something or pitch something. Like there was a lot of projects in the middle there. Like I, 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 I wrote for free, you know, TV specs. I, I adapted my favorite comic book because I wanted to, and that got me a lot of notice and, and a lot of meetings. Mm, which comic um, book? Just curious. Oh, uh, uh, um, uh, Scalp, uh, Jason Aaron Scalp. It's a DC Vertigo book. It's basically True Detective and Sopranos on an Indian reservation. It's uh, it's an amazing book. Um, and I, I was just like, I love this. I love this book. I want to. I've never adapted something before. I'm uh, might as well do this. And in five days, I I adapted a pilot, and that showed me, oh, I can write fast. Because uh, you know, sometimes you you get caught up in your own head and it can take you months to write an hour of television or a year to write a movie. Um, so it was like, okay, I can do this on the TV schedule, which is, you know, you're turning out an episode a week. And that was just to, to teach myself how to do that. And, and then, you know, I, there was so many meetings and so much uh, free development I was doing for the chance to maybe get paid. Cause when you have these meetings there, you know, people have like a list of open writing assignments or they have an idea that they would like to do. Or there's an idea of yours that they would like to do, but you're not at a level where they feel willing to engage you on with money. So unfortunately you got to do a lot of work for free, which sucks. That's, you have to learn to accept that you go in the beginning, you're going to have to do a certain level of free work. That doesn't mean you do like a full movie, or a treatment, but maybe a one pager, you know, like an hour or three hours on a, on a Saturday's worth of work. And that's where you leave. And if they want to engage you further, then you figure that out. Hopefully you have reps in place that can help you with that. But, you know, what I learned is that, you know, that there's a lot of stepping stones from when you started to when you get your first sale and can actually call yourself 
oh, I'm getting closer to being a professional in this career. So if you're the one doing the pitch, do you become the showrunner or are you just the writer? That's that's a really good question. Um, So in my situation, because I had no produced credits and I've never uh, worked on set for a TV show, my deal would be I would be like executive producer on the show and then they would bring in a more seasoned executive producer level, showrunner level person to co-run the show with me. That's, that's the plan. So I would, I, you know, at that point I would have the option of actually wanting to show run that show. They could just take it away from me and make the, the showrunner the guy in charge. And I would just be a mid-level, high-level writer on my own show, which is a little weird to say. It's like, okay, so this thing I created, you're going to create it kind of without me, but I'll be there in the, in the trenches to a degree. And that's, you know, that's something that happens. That's something I would be totally cool with because I, I don't want to run a show without knowing how to actually make television. Like I would want to not skip any stages to get to that level. I would want to learn how to do it. So I'm in a better position for those working with me and for me. So, uh, is that your goal someday to be, to get to that level of showrunner? That's, that is a goal. I would, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the, the Damon Lindelof or the Weiss and Benioffs of it. I would, I would just like to make good TV. Like I, I didn't move out to LA to be a writer. I moved out to LA to be a TV writer, specifically a Star Trek writer. And that's where, that's where I want to be. I want to, if I can be a good number two in a room or running my own show without, you know, all the, the, the entertainment weekly cover stories that come with that, I would, I would be happy for me. Okay. So if you want to be a Star Trek writer, like how are you, how do you do that? How do you become the Star Trek writer? Can you speak Vulcan? Can you speak Vulcan? Blackmail. (laughs) Do you have to learn how to speak Vulcan? (laughs) Well, actually, no. (laughs) It's Klingon that gets you in. Or Klingon. Um, Klingon. I'm, you know, it's, Star Trek, when I started, was the last TV show that they did was ending, and Star Trek was kind of dead, and it was just living in features. But now with you know Discovery and whatever, and all the great stuff that Secret Hideout and CBS All Access are doing, um, I, I was able to you know through networking and friends, I was I was able to get on uh, their list for staffing consideration, and I'm working to you know get some meetings over there. So that's like the first step slash writing something sci-fi in the tone of of what what they're doing on Star Trek. So that's uh my my I'm crossing all the fingers and toes to get there. What are your other favorite shows? Ooh, uh I like all a lot Star of Trek. Stuff. <laughs> uh I do like a lot of Star Trek, but I like right now uh Better Call Saul is up there for me nice. watching that 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 is the best screenwriting masterclass you can get is watching that show, listening to the, the podcast that Vince Gilligan and, and the showrunner Peter Gould and the cast do on that. Uh, they break down a lot of the nitty gritty and the warts and all of how story is broken in the writer's room. I, I can't recommend watching that show and listening to the podcast enough. I love Mindhunter. Uh, I, I go to a lot of comfort foodie. Like I, I'll rewatch episodes of Thirty Rock. Uh, you can learn a lot 
about dialogue from that show and, and also just because it's so damn funny. Those, those are the those are the shows I, I, I watch a lot of. And I'm, I'm a big fan of Happy Endings that ABC sitcom that was canceled way too soon. Uh, that is a hilarious show. Britain agrees with you on that one. <laughs> Sweet. We can just do a side podcast on that if you want. I will make all the time. Yes, yes. So, well, you mentioned like masterclass and screenwriting and dialogue, but what are the other resources that you pull from, you know, when you're when you're writing or if you were talking to an aspiring screenwriter, like where do you get your guidance? Oh, that's wow. You, these are really good questions. Um, Thank you. I, I don't know what to do like all the time in that area, but I know what like not to do. And I would not just, I would not do like the, that McKee storybook or I would not invest too much in getting like, you know, the Sidfield screenplay book. When I went to school, the resources were very limited. They were very library bound, classroom bound. And now thanks to Twitter and the internet and writers like John August, like these, this stuff that was once, you know, confined to what you thought would be education only, they're, they're just out there via Google search. I would, in addition to that podcast, Children of Tendu, I would strongly invite people interested in being writers to check out johnaugust.com. Uh, on that site, he lists his trials and tribulations through a lot of development processes. And he also has links to his pitch docs, his treatments, and some of his scripts. And those are invaluable because they, one, pitch docs are not a thing that they, that they give you in film school. I, the pitch doc we were taught how to write, I was embarrassed when I used that format in a meeting. I was told you know, you're very green. I get it. Thank you for coming in. But this is not how it's done. You need to look at this. So I was taught the wrong way to do something that's an industry standard. And a site like John August's has like the best examples for that. Great. Thanks. Yeah, it's very essential. And uh, the Children of Tendu podcast, they do a whole run on how to pitch and what happens when you sell the pitch. They get real granular with it. And then they also have like an entire run of episodes breaking down how to get staffed, what to do when you are staffed, what not to do when you're staffed, and how to engage and behave in the room, depending on what level of writer, what what title you have of writer in that room. And those are very important. For me, like I I said, I have a very black and white brain. I would be a professional student if I could. I loved learning. I love the one-to-one response of being in the classroom. So listening to how others do it helps me do it myself. And I, I, I would encourage people to seek that out. And also, it's, I, I think it's very helpful to uh, go online to sites like scriptslug.com and download scripts or go to IndieWire. And when they run the the Academy time uh, Academy Awards time, they'll post links to potential Academy Award nominated scripts, and download all of those. Sometimes they even put up like a back catalog from the last few years. Download those and read read what's not just getting made, but read what and how people are writing the stuff that gets made, and you can develop your own writing style that way by seeing how others are doing theirs. I think that the best education I had was 
reading specs and other scripts for formatting. And, oh, like, I want to do a scene that intercuts across, you know, two different spheres of action. And there's dual dialogue happening where people are talking over each other. How do I format that? Oh, well, the script for Star Trek 2009 has a really good example of that. Or Michael Mann has a really good example in his Miami Vice. And even though these are people that are marquee names whose movies you may own on your shelves, that doesn't mean you can't ape their style or borrow uh, from them in, in helping make your own. So listening to those, listening to that podcast, going to those sites and getting your hands on as many scripts as possible, as many script PDFs as possible for both TV and movies, that, that I would I would say that will help you. That will help any aspiring screenwriter you know get ready for you know wanting to do it. That's great, Phil. I think we can probably list all of those resources in the episode notes as well, so um, so people can. Yeah, if you need some links, I can send them over. Oh, sure, we'll take them. <laughs> Thanks. No problem. Um, so anyway, let's shift gears a little bit because we wanted to talk in general about LA and what it means to be a writer or TV showrunner or filmmaker in LA versus working in other cities, um, having an industry develop in a very small city like Erie. Um, and Jesse can speak a little bit more to that, but um, I'm curious about your your thoughts on that. Um, is it possible to be successful in this industry without being in, in LA? Um, is there another path um, in filmmaking? And is there anywhere else uh, in, the, in the country that you feel like is a hotspot? And then the last thing I'll ask is, would you ever come back to Erie? Oh, I'll answer the last part first. Yeah, of course I would come back to that. That is a is a goal is to get successful enough where I can afford to live by coastal and just come out to LA for meetings and such and just live on the East Coast. Uh, my fiance doesn't like the snow, so we're figuring that out. Uh, but hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, I'm able to get it to a level of success where I can afford to be home for that. Um, and as for, you know, coming out to LA, um, since everything is done here, I mean, shows get produced in, in other countries like Canada and, you know, New York is, is also, you know, a source for creatives. LA is, is where you have to be. I, I think to give it a full shot, um, the, the reps are out here, your contacts are out here, the people you will call future colleagues and maybe employers are all based out here. So you want to come here. If you're a writer. If, if, you're, if you want to be a writer or director, in my experience, the, the, you'll find more success getting at ground zero from where everything's happening. So what about... I never would have been able to give a donut to Spielberg if I was moving to New York, you know, or I never would have met the people I met if I was anywhere else but L.A. And I, I think, you know, for those planning to make the move or thinking about it, like coping ahead for what that would entail to move to L.A. and all the possibilities you'll find there versus what you won't find in other places. I think that's that's key to deciding if this is where you want to be. Well, then that's a good question for Jesse. I mean, Jesse, why did you move to LA? What did you do while you were there? And it why did you come? Traffic, why sure. did you come back? Uh, I moved out to act, but kind of the same reason. Um, didn't know. I just said, you know, Hollywood's where you have to go. 
So that's where I went. And um, I did come back for family and, and personal reasons. But then I fell in love with Erie when I came back. And I think I, I totally agree with you for the the angle you've taken on your career to kind of to work your way up and transition out of writing for other people versus writing for yourself. Um, you're you're right in the middle of all of it, and you have the most opportunity for those face-to-face meetings and make those personal connections that are so necessary. I think you can you can have other kinds of success in other cities. Um, if if not necessarily writing, but you want to be on a crew or just work in the industry, you know, you there's so many film cities now that you can go to and get consistent work. Yeah, um, Pittsburgh is great for that. Yeah, absolutely. They're so close to us, and um, just in the past year or so, I've I've met so many filmmakers there, and some of them come up to Erie, and some of them from Erie go down there to work. So um, it really just depends what your goals are, I think. For me, I have some personal projects that I want to produce here in Erie, and um, I, I understand the level of infrastructure that we can support, and it's, it's totally enough for what I want to do. So it's my home base, and I have my family here, and I have all my friends here. So for me, it makes sense um, if I wanted to tackle those industry films and shows again someday. Um, yeah, I probably would go back to, to Hollywood. I think that's good to know, you know, where you can be the most effective with your resources and and what your goals are. If if you want to be the next J.J. Abrams, I would invite someone to move out to L.A. and accept that it's very unlikely you will be the next J.J. Abrams because there's only one of those. So be the next you. The next you. That's great. That's like, a great. Like be like, I, I, I think uh, uh, back to your question from like five minutes ago, I, another thing I learned is while you know you'll be asked what do you want out of your career what what are your goals and it's important to have like a business plan and don't be modest but don't be arrogant either like try to find that nice that nice middle path of of confidence and assertiveness where it's like in six months i would like to have this meeting or i would like to be in development with this place and these are the things i want to do to get there and you can say, you know, ideally, I would like to be in the same cul-de-sac as JJ or Joss Whedon, or I want to be making these type of shows. Or give him a donut. Space. <laughs> just handing him a donut is. Or just handing him a donut. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's key too. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think you know, you know, they uh, a screenwriter does this. Uh, there's a screenwriter called Dennis Palumbo. He used to write for Welcome Back, Cotter and a lot of uh, classic shows. And he's now transitioned to be a therapist for screenwriters. And one of the things he says is the greatest thing a screenwriter can do is develop the ability to tolerate despair. Because that's all what a lot of the job is. Because we, we put, rightly or wrongly, so much weight and import on 58 pages of a pilot or 110 of a script. And that is so much burden, so much weight for one project to have because we, we, we put that, we put all our eggs in that basket. And when that doesn't work out, we're like, oh, are we a failure? Is this not meant to be? Are we not supposed to do this? And you're struggling with that as you're waiting for people to get back to you on stuff. Sometimes they don't even get back to you. And what the hell is that about? Um, you're, you're wondering when it's going to happen for you. You see your friends have a, achieve a certain level of success and you're like, 
I've been doing this longer or they're older than me or younger than me. What the hell's going on? Like, why isn't this working? And all of that stuff is your, is your jerk off brain trying to solve the problem of why it's not working for you or if you're ever going to make this happen. And I've, I've struggled with that. I struggle with that. And unfortunately that struggle doesn't go away even at the JJ Abrams level. It's just a different type of problem. You're all in the same boat rowing it together. You just have better different seats. And I think it's, I think it's just very important to, you know, yes, I would like to be the next JJ Abrams in that I want to tell genre stories built on characters that you care so much about. I want to tell shows or movies that have this mystery box kind of plot, but they're built on the backs of people that you invest in for the long haul of five seasons or three movies, whatever it is, that's where I want to be. And hopefully you find people that want to invest in making you the next you. And then they can say, we found the next J.J. Abrams, or we found the next Joss Whedon or Damon Lindelof, because you write stories that only you know how to tell, just like they do. And I think that's an important uh, distinction, because a lot of people coming out here thinking they're going to be on the track for J.J. level success, or someone of that, you know, marquee value, um, you risk setting yourself up for a level of disappointment. And it's already hard enough out here between, you know, the traffic and the cost of living and the ambiguity surrounding when is it going to happen to me? Don't try very hard not to put yourself in a position where it feels harder for you to succeed. Well, that's a great note to end on, Phil. And I know you have some support structure uh, business to take care of. And um, I really thank you for for being on the podcast with us. It does sound like thank you guys for having me. This is this has been so much fun. I'm I, I love helping out, uh, especially with uh, you know local folks. Yeah, and it sounds like we should could probably have you back again uh, for some oh, other I would topics. I'd be honored to do that if you guys have the time. I would love that. That's great. Well, Phil, it was great talking to you, and we'll catch up soon. I hope your fiance is doing well and recovers. Me too. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you again for having me. All right, take Thanks, care. Phil. That's been our episode. You can buy tickets for Amazing Grace and the rest of our programming at filmsocietynwpa.org or at the door on the day of the event. Film Grain Podcast will return December 2nd. Make sure you follow us on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain. This podcast is produced by Edinburgh University's Center for Branding and Strategic Communication. It's part of the Northwest Pennsylvania Innovation Beehive Network.